All right, the first confession. How many gherkin lovers are there out there? Any, any gherkin lovers? The name of that just is wrong. Who's going to like gherkin? I didn't even know what that was. Somebody had to tell me what that was, a pickle or some sort of something. Um, don't you love just the, the reaction? I don't know if you remember when you were growing up or any of your kids. I know Trish and I remember giving our kids, or maybe it was me giving them cruelly things to taste and like, I'm going to watch how they react. I remember Lauren. Was it Lauren that loved lemon? And it, she, would, she would like do all that shake, but then like want more, and she kept eating more lemon. Uh, it's something about that, but the, I think the favorite in there has to be the girl getting that olive. It's that anticipation that I'm not going to like this. And did you see the discovery, the change? All of a sudden, her eyes got big, and it's like, Yes, I like olives. How cool is that? I think this morning it gives us a good picture about first tastes or first love. Let me ask you, do you remember the first time that you tasted of the grace that God gave you? When's the last time you reflected on the grace that was showered upon you? I don't know where it was and I don't know how it unfolded, But you discovered, like that little child, the first time you said, oh my gosh, this is amazing. When was that? We want to talk this morning a little bit differently because I think we fall victim to something that happens in our culture and our world today is that we can forget the first taste. We could forget our first love. And it's grace forgotten. We, We miss... Uh, that opportunity to reflect back and remember what we first tasted is so great. And unlike maybe food and and other things that we love, because we cherish those things that become our favorites, what is it with our spiritual lives that we can find ourselves falling away, away from that very thing that we loved at that moment we received it? Now just in review, as we've talked about grace the last several weeks. We're going to talk about grace forgotten, but we don't want to forget that grace defined is the unmerited favor of God. One of the things we struggle with here in at least this part of Wisconsin, up here in Green Bay, is religion. And the problem with religion, it flies right in opposition to grace. Religion defines itself is that you can earn God's favor. That you can behave a certain way and do certain things and God will be happy. And that will get you nowhere with God. The Bible's clear. It says often that religion does not save any man. doesn't save any woman. doesn't change a heart. And so we have Ephesians, as we talked about the first week, that you've been saved through faith, by grace. And that grace is unmerited and you could not earn it. And yet religion will teach that you can. And so what's a crime today in our culture is no wonder people stay away from God when the measure is religion. When it's about you have to earn your way or clean yourself up. And then the problem with religious cultures is that you walk into a religious culture and immediately there's a pecking order of who is behaving the best. And who's the worst? No wonder people who don't know God, would stay very far away from religion. And that's why we keep talking here is 
This is not about religious rituals or traditions. That finding Jesus Christ is experiencing that first taste of full grace that you did not deserve and you did not earn. So we know that grace is Jesus. The story from Genesis to Revelation that this story is about Jesus Christ. It's not about religion and it's not about programs and it's not about buildings. But it's the people of God coming together and being reminded of the showers of His grace that are ever continuing. It's not a one-time experience. It's not just you taste of God and then that's it. You're done. He says as we taste, then we're promised a continual showering of His grace. And as Tricia talked a couple weeks ago about just the, the PVC pipe, that idea that grace is, is Christ and we receive that from heaven. We receive that from God. Only God. We can't develop grace. We can't regulate grace. If, if I'm struggling with somebody here and I also say, uh, you know, Jeff is, I'm not liking Jeff right now, so I'm, I'm going to give him just a little bit less grace. You know, on a scale of 1 to 10, I'm going to give him a 2. See, so you can't do that with grace. When you have received that grace from Christ, there's no regulator on it for you. You begin just to shower it out. And it's not even by your choice, but people will say there's something different because you forgive and you give and you serve and you love and you bring peace and you restore and you give yourself and you turn the other cheek and it just goes on and on and you become this conduit of grace for God. And so it's important that we reflect on that, but we forget, don't we? I know I do. I know it happened uh, this weekend. And uh, it's, it was, what, 25 years ago in June for Trish and I that we were married. And for us to stand on an altar and to say, for better or worse. And then this weekend, for us to, to go through a little spat, all right, an argument, all right, a problem, right? And how quickly you can find yourself forgetting that we chose to be in this together. We chose to love one another this way. We, even when we don't like one another, even when we don't feel love, that we've chosen it. We can, we can walk away and going back to that first moment, that first time for us is so critical. St. Augustine says it this way, says to fall in love with God is the greatest romance. It's something that we should never forget and we can't forget. To seek Him is the greatest adventure. To find Him is the greatest human achievement. Now, it says human achievement. It's not like you get credit because God really reveals Himself to you, right? He, he reveals Himself to you. And why is that? Because He's chosen you and He loves you. Part of the struggle we have in our culture today is that we forget we forget. Now this has never been so like illuminated than when we look in the Bible and specifically to uh, a passage in the book of Revelation. Now if you want, if you have Bibles, turn to Revelation. It's the last book in the Bible. The books in the Bible start with Genesis. The ending of the story is in Revelation. And we find that God is going to speak through the prophet uh, John. And John is going to then prophesy... 
He's going to prophesy about what's to come. He's specifically, though, going to talk to seven churches. And it's called the seven warnings to the seven churches. And these seven churches are roughly kind of in the Asia, Asia minor, minor area. And they are flourishing churches just like ours. They're churches that, that if you read through your New Testament, you'll find that God has turns over. And one specific church we're going to look at in Revelation chapter 2 is Ephesus. Now Ephesus, just to give you a cultural context, could be like Las Vegas, Amsterdam, and Madison, right? Because they're not Christians in Madison, right? Um, it's, it's, it's putting them all together and this metropolis, Ephesus. It was a gateway, a portal, like a port city. Uh, lots of people there. And Paul in Acts, in Acts 17 specifically, is, is cited as going into there and discipling for two years and turning that city upside down from being a pagan, godless city to a church planning center. Um, amazing. So when everyone, anyone says our city is lost, it can't be saved. Can Amsterdam, can Madison, you know, can Las Vegas, God can change a city. He just needs people that are willing to, to live underneath that grace and become conduits for him. So Ephesus is a city. And so I want you to look at this. In Revelation chapter 2, it says, he says, I know your deeds, and this is God speaking to the church in Ephesus, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and you have not grown weary. This seems like a great report, doesn't it? I mean, if, if this could be our report for Green Bay Community Church from God, wow. I mean, that's a good report. Watching our teaching, we're working hard, we're enduring hardships. We're not getting tired and weary. I mean, this is a good report for a church, right? It seems like they're working hard. Remember what I said about grace? Grace is not about you working for anything. So, so look at what he says. Yet, God says, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. In other words, you forgot that first taste. You forgot the love that I showered upon you, that first moment that you had grace and, and Jesus invaded your life, you forgot it. And he says, consider how far you have fallen. Now, just for clarity, grace is not something that we can escape. God has it for us 24-7 in its fullness. You don't get less of God's grace because of your behavior. It is always there, but we wander away. It says, consider how far you fall and repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I, I told the first service this, and I need to say this to you. There is not a day, even Saturdays, that I don't think as a pastor of this church that that last part scares me to death. I do not want to be why God would remove his lampstand from Green Bay Community Church. I'm sinful. I'm a, I'm a sinner and broken just like all of you. I am, Lord, I don't want to get in your way. I don't really fully know what removing the lampstand means. 
It's symbolic to the Holy of Holies. I assume it has a lot to do with blessing and protection and guidance and direction from God. And you know what I'm talking about. You can feel God's presence when a church gathers, right? There's a sense about that body. And I pray, Lord, I don't want to walk away and forget our first love. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be the person that leads that charge no matter how hard we are working. You see that? So many churches today can find themselves working hard and doing great things, but have walked away from their first love. Now, we're talking about a church. A church is not a program or a building. The church is the people. This morning, I want to make a personal application to us as the people, as the church, about four possibilities, about four strategies that we can adopt that causes us to move away from God's grace. Now, we don't fully move away from God's grace. We, what I'd say, move towards lesser loves. They're wrong strategies. They're, they're things we find ourselves gravitating towards because we like to be in charge and in control, right? And how can it be that a church this flourishing in Ephesus find itself, get this great four lines from God about how hard you're working, but you missed the very thing that I wanted you to be about. Sitting under my grace. Living as a church of grace. I want to give you four strategies this morning. Four different models that you might be employing. Now, I want to clarify this morning, I see myself in all four at times. You might this morning too. I also want to clarify this morning that you are going to feel some level of guilt. But I want you to know it's not because I'm telling you to feel guilty or I'm shaming you. I'm right with you. I'm sitting in the chairs with you this morning as we read these passages and we see these strategies as sinful and I can move to these lesser loves just like you. So please hear me this morning. If you're new, this is not shaming you that you don't live correctly. It is we're identifying why is it we can forget that first love that God offers us, that grace that's so amazing. It's the olive, that, that recognition of, oh, I don't want to live another day without his grace. Why do we move away from that? I want to give you four strategies this morning. So if you're taking notes, you may want to jot these down. First comes from Jeremiah 2, and it's a prophet, and he's speaking to the nation of Israel, and he's going to, to suggest Maybe this love that they have fallen into. It says, my people have committed two sins. First, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. The, the idea here, it's, meta, it's a metaphor. It means that you've moved away from the living water that God's grace gives us. He's talking about the pleasure, the, that satisfying, quenching uh, coolness of what God brings is called living water. And, and the Bible is full of this metaphor. But you've moved away from that. You've forsaken that. Or you've forgotten it. And have dug your own cisterns. Broken cisterns that cannot hold water. When we went to Masada this year in Israel, it's the second time I've been up there, and they have this, typically in that time, they would dig these deep, deep wells or huge bowls that would be like plastered on the inside to hold water. And what God's saying here is when there's a crack in it or there's mud that gets into it, it's a broken cistern that can't hold anything. 
And he's saying, can you recognize the difference? You ever seen like a muddy, murky water versus clear water? He's saying, you have done this. The picture this morning for that is that you're a well digger. A well digger. Well diggers basically are people that are committed to pleasure. They're people that are going to do anything they can to avoid pain. This is typically where addictions come in. It means I don't feel happy right now. I'm going to dig my own well and I'm going to find sexual pleasure, whether it's through pornography or just living together or just sex outside of marriage. I'm going to do that. Or I'm going to find myself in alcohol or drugs. Those are some of the big ones, right? But let's start digging a little bit deeper. I'm going to make work or pleasure or fishing and hunting. I'm going to make that because I just feel so good. Now, none of these things are bad in and of themselves, meaning, yes, pornography is, yes, sex outside of marriage is. But sex itself isn't. Outdoors is not bad. Work is not bad. But they are lesser loves when they're there to give us our pleasure, when we're seeking that to make us happy. One of the ways that we begin to move away and forget God's grace is we start digging wells and and filling it with things that we think are going to bring us happiness. Could be money. Could be shopping. Could be could be reading, could be I don't know whatever it is that you have found that you is your go-to cuz you need to pick me up. Could be a bottle of wine. There're definitely times where I'm like I just want to sit down, and then it's an escape of avoiding pain, avoiding discomfort. I mean, ask yourself the question, when the last time, when you have stress in your life, when you have a broken relationship in your life, where do you go? What do you do? This often will expose in all of us that well-digging habit, that go-to. And again, this is not shaming you this morning. I'm, I'm saying for me too. It's something that we can go to and we can become these well diggers that are looking to, to fill these cisterns with a water that's so different. It's a wrong strategy because we know that what? You get caught in this and you don't feel good about yourself. You may for a moment. But then what happens? Guilt. Shame. It doesn't have to come from anybody else. It comes from ourselves. It comes from our own digging. The second one this morning comes out of Genesis. And it's a story of Cain, who we know kills Abel, right? He's outcast, and it says, So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. We know that his generation then later on will begin to build a city. Uh, later to be called, uh, and, and which builds the Tower of Babel. It says this in, in chapter 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found the plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches into the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Some dig wells. You might do that this morning. Others, their go-to is being city builders. City builders are committed. 
They're committed and, and very aggressively to accomplishment. Because in their mind is they want to validate and develop for themselves an image based on what they've done. I am a recovering city builder. So this, this weekend, it was really easy for me, intention in our relationship, I'll go clean the garage. Because my identity can be around cleaning my garage. Cleaning something up, fixing something up, making something. And there are many people that find themselves building cities and looking for their identity on what they've done. Such a wrong strategy because no part of grace does it have in there, I will measure what you do. I'll give you grace only if you do this. It's really difficult in this one in the space of ministry. As a, as a pastor, because we're about building programs and, and volunteer teams and doing all those things, and I love it, but it could become something that if I start to I create my own identity around building cities around ministry, it becomes a lesser love. It's not to say that city building is negative and building things and being a part of business, but you know what I'm talking about. Some find themselves and their whole identity is their work or projects. I laugh because there, there are so many times, and I don't think I recognized it, when I'd have this massive drive to do a big project. And I'm beginning to realize more and more it was when there was discomfort, whether it was in our relationship, Trish and I, or just something in my life. And it, whether it was sin in my life, which is interesting, we can feel so bad about our well digging that we're going to now offset that, right, and say, I'll just go build a city to make myself feel better about the dirty water I'm drinking. You see how that gets messy? I remember the one time I uh, had told Trisha, hey, let's, we were talking about putting a dormer in this like loft in a girl's bedroom. And I think I had talked to her for like 10 minutes and, you know, like a good wife. She's like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea, honey. It was very affirming. Well, she went to go buy groceries. I found the Sawzall in the garage and called my neighbor and said, I know how I'm going to do this. And I cut out about a size, well, about half the size of this stage out of the roof. And could you imagine pulling up to your house and seeing your husband poking out of the roof? Sometimes we find ourselves so hungry to make our identity around what we do. And, and I think that we rush into things. And you can see this in the drivenness of many people. You might be a well digger. You may be a city builder. You might be this next one, Ezekiel 13. This is what the sovereign Lord says. This is, again, a prophet to the nation of Israel. Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. He's saying this is ridiculous. Prophets are conduits for God. They're supposed to be getting a message from God and broadcasting that out. He's saying, you're just, you're just setting, up, you're setting up your own message. You're not a prophet. It says, because they lead my people astray, saying peace when there's no peace. They're saying this is there, but it's not really there. And because when a flimsy wall is built, they cover it with whitewash. Therefore, tell those who cover it with whitewash that it is going to fall. Rain will come down in torrents, and I will send hailstones hurtling down with violent winds that will burst forth. When the wall collapses, 
Will people not ask you, where is the whitewash you covered it with? So there's a couple stories about this in, in the scripture where there are cities that were built um, and cities with walls create security and safety. And there's this story that the prophet's talking about is there are people that would build a flimsy wall but paint it as if it was a real wall to make it look different than what was reality. We see this again in the New Testament. Jesus is going to say to the Pharisees, who looked are very religious on the outside, but on the inside very different. Woe to you teachers of the law, the Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. In other words, tombstones that look beautiful on the outside, uh, but in the inside are full of bones and, and of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. The, the third area are whitewashers. Whitewashers. It's the people that are committed to safety. And, and sadly enough, it happens more and more in the church. This might be one of the biggest crimes of religion today is that it's walking into this place and having whitewashed your life in such a way to make the appearance that you look different than what's really going on in your life. Because you're so committed to being safe. I work hard to appear like everything is well. And you whitewash. When the very thing that God says is that I'm here for you, grace is sufficient for you, and you're not to pretend and whitewash and pretend that things are all great. It's such a struggle, I know in the church today, in, in all over America, less in third world, because third world doesn't have anything to pretend with. They have very little to whitewash with because it's bad. They've hit bottom. Part of the problem we have with affluence and some of the resources we have is we get to pretend. But getting people into groups is ridiculous because there's this perception that, you know what, I'm going to whitewash. I don't want to let anybody in. I'm just going to keep whitewashing. So look at the combination. You might be one of these three. If you're a well digger, and you're looking for ways that you can create, avoid that pain or, or somehow give yourself some sense of relief from pain. You feel guilty. You may try to go build something. That doesn't feel enough. I better just start painting the wall so that I, I look a little bit different on the outside. This is where religious behavior becomes so prevalent. And we get to point fingers because look how nice the walls look in my life when inside it's dark, just like everyone else. Whitewashing. Committed to safety. Here's the last one. Isaiah 50, another prophet. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. In other words... All throughout the Bible, there's another metaphor, and that is that God is light. And light in a dark place, what, brings clarity. It brings, it illuminates where we can walk and where we are. That's why the scripture often talks about Jesus being the light of the world. He exposes darkness. We don't have to point fingers at anyone that God brings this light and exposes that to us. 
And so it says, let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in God for that light. But he says this, but now, all of you who light your own fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go. Walk in your own light of your own fires and the torches that you've set ablaze. In other words, you want your own direction in your own way? You have this figured out? Go ahead. Light your own fires. You're a fire lighter. You're one that's committed largely to confidence. It's about you lighting your own way, having your own knowledge. And once again, this finds its way so quickly into the church. And sadly enough, it could be used in spiritual ways, right? I just, I'll know all Bible verses and answers. And those aren't bad. But when they become, I'm here just for knowledge. I'm here just to know some answers. I have my own way and my own direction. It's like Job in the book of Job. Job is so committed to his own kind of methods and ways. He, he originally starts out being very humble to God, but eventually he starts to question God. In other words, he starts to come up with his own picture of what life is really about. He is a firelighter. Some people are so committed to this and having knowledge and understanding on their own. A firelighter. And you know who I'm talking about, right? Got to know the answer. Got to have the spiritual direction. Again, you see this in the church as you see any of these. It's a wrong strategy. I'll pursue knowledge for control. Just knowing. I'll have the answers. Or they're that I know person. They drive me nuts. And part of the reason is because I used to be that. Growing up, I was, I know, I know, I know. Anybody know any of those people? I just figured out, I don't need God. I don't need you. I'm a firelighter. And it's putting up, the, again, this, another false strategy because there's a fear of, of, of not, they're, they're not confident. Often people that are, are firelighters are not very confident people. They're so worried about making their identity about what they know. This morning I've given you four. There's many more. But they're wrong strategies. And they move us to lesser loves. They move us away from the realization of the fullness of God's grace. Are you a well digger this morning? A part of things in your life that are just trying to appease some hurt and pain? You may have conflict in relationships. You may have something going on in your life financially. It's just horrible. And you're trying to figure out ways just to feel good right now. Friends, it'll get you nowhere. It's a bad strategy. Maybe you're a city builder. I'll just work harder. I'll just define myself by how hard I work and people will know me and God's going to give me good merit for how I work. It's a wrong strategy. You might be a whitewasher of just trying to fake it. I'll make the impression that everything's okay. And that's going to kill you on the inside. Do you see the combo of some of these is ridiculous? Or maybe this morning you're a firelighter. And you're someone that's just so set on the answers. And getting it all right. 
In many ways, firelighters are so insecure and it's their whole faith world lives in their head and not in their heart. Any combination of these is, 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 is so defeating and damaging to experiencing the fullness of grace. And again, it's not that God's grace has left anywhere. It's still there. And I know I'm, these are, I'm, I would say I'm a, a city builder first and sometimes I'm a well digger. And, and those are the ones I struggle with. Those are the ones that I have to work through. And so how this morning can we begin to go back to our first love? Go back to that moment like that little girl in the olive of that moment when you first discovered the grace that God gave you. You've got to remember. And that's most of why we gather, is to grow us up, but it's to always be reminded. It's why we take communion. Jesus said, do this and remember the grace that I offer. Fellowship is so that you not only are equipped and feel love and part of the community, but so that you remember. Singing songs, not only to give glory to God, but so that you remember. Giving is not so that you just provide the resources to give to other the poor, but so that you remember. Friends, all the things that we talk about are disciplines of remembering who God is. This morning, step one, I would say, is first you've got to realize your sin. You've got to fess up. you just got to realize where are you. And you may be, you know, some, some, a lady in the, the lobby between services told me, I'm all of them. You know? I said, well, you got some work to do then. You do, definitely do. You, you're, you've dug yourself a deep hole. No, I'm joking. Uh, just, just saying and realizing that you do these things is so freeing. It begins to expose the darkness in all of us. For me to tell you as a pastor, I do struggle with these two. I'm totally human. There are days I would love to be drunk. Now, I've never been drunk, but boy, there's enough pain sometimes to go, that'd be nice to just not think about anything for a couple hours, or I don't even know how long it takes, but whatever. <laughs> be numbed. And you can see that, or... or I'll escape in a movie or I just I need something to move me away. I, I'm fessing up. You've got to confess that this morning and realize your sin. It's not how God designed you. Here's the second thing. You've got to renounce your strategy. You need to look at these things and saying they don't work. And they don't not only work, he's called me to something so much greater. He's called me out of this, this strategy and saying I have something so much greater for you. And so you look at the different ones and you renounce your strategy. And that's why we as leaders, as staff, as we're doing this series on transformation of the heart and starting to talk more and more about this, is just fessing up what we are. Yeah, I'm mostly a city builder. That's where my go-to. And I'll do this sometimes. I've done these. But these are kind of where I rest. It's renouncing that. And they don't work. And I no longer want to find my value and my identity there. And then you do the third thing, is you reclaim his truth. So we said, you know it would be a great idea for some of you, is go flood the hardware stores this weekend, and maybe some of you need to buy, you city builders need to buy a hammer or a square. And maybe you need to write a verse on there, and it needs to sit somewhere. So you remind yourself that city building is not a good strategy for me. 
Some of you need to pick up a shovel and say, and maybe write that God is the one that brings the greatest joy. And find a verse that's yours. And write it on the spade to the front of that thing and stick it right in your living room. Stick it right next to the fridge. Whatever it needs to be that you need to say, I can't do that anymore. Some of you are whitewashers and need to hit the, the, the paint section. Whether it's buying an empty can of paint or something just to say, no more faking it. And others, maybe it's a candle. I don't know what it is. <laughs> a full torch in your house. Campfire. Something to signify. Fire lighting. It's not going to get you anywhere. You reclaim his truth and writing on there that he is the one that gives you light. He is the one that calls us to greater things and does something through us. He is the one that gives us pleasure. And he is our safety. This morning as we go to communion and we are led in this music time, might I challenge you to do this? Can you confess one or a few of these that you are? Not just to God, but the person you go to communion with. And if you don't have someone to go to communion with, pull a friend next, pull somebody next to you. You don't even have to know them. And say, I'm a firelighter. I'm a whitewasher. And you're renouncing that as a wrong strategy. You're saying it's not a good strategy. And reclaim the truth as you take communion this morning that he is there as your first love. Father in heaven, will you give us such a sense of your grace this morning as we go to the table and reminded of your great gift through the sacrifice of Jesus that God, we have enough forgiveness and love and joy and peace and kindness. We have so much right there. Help us not to forget. Help us remember this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.